This episode of On The Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles Curbside Pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here. Welcome to tonight's Ingles On The Beat segment. Obviously a fantastic G-Day game to talk about. And as I wrote earlier this week, it could not have been scripted any better. Remember now, Kirby Smart and his coaches they know before the game what plays are going to be run offensively, defensively. I think it's fair to say that they have an idea of what might happen. Now, that's not to, I'm not trying to say that the whole thing is, you know, is, is, is scripted in terms of how it plays out. Guys still have to make plays. Guys still have to perform. And that's really where the evaluation kind of starts because you don't really know who's going to step up and, and play in the spotlight and who may not. Now, the good news, I think, for Georgia, big takeaway is I thought the top two quarterbacks, I thought Beck and Vandergrift played really well. Uh, there were some moments on defense in the second half, but I let me rewind and go all the way back to just some concepts that I wrote about in my column this weekend. And that was about Kirby Smart recognizing what this G-Day game was all about. And you might say, well, Mike, it was a scrimmage. They had three scrimmages, and this is one of them. Well, it was, but it wasn't, all right? The scrimmage is behind closed doors. Kirby's going to challenge these players more. He's going to try to create adversity and hard times for these quarterbacks. He wants to simulate in-game pressure and what can go wrong. We know any Georgia quarterback can win and when everything is going right. But what happens when things go wrong is the question. And I think that's what Kirby Smart wanted to try to find out in the first two scrimmages. And you'll remember that he said there were some bonehead mistakes. We know in the first scrimmage, Carson Beck threw three interceptions. Uh, don't really know much about the second scrimmage. But Kirby really tested those guys in the first two scrimmages and created adversity behind the scenes. It was not the time to do that in a nationally televised ESPN2 game. You've got to realize what was at stake here. The whole image of Georgia football was on national television, live national television on ESPN2. Kirby did not need his quarterbacks melting down. He did not need to be on the field acting like a maniac being held back by Scott Sinclair as we see him every fall. So what we got was a very good advertisement for Georgia football. And listen, everybody did their part. The, you know, the, the, the gods took care of the weather. You had tremendous weather. It was sunny. Fans showed up. You had 54,000 people in Sanford Stadium, even with the construction limitations. Uh, and, and then the quarterbacks really stepped up and played well. I was really impressed with Carson Beck. I mean, he threw a beautiful ball. That fade that he threw to, to Brock Bowers when he beat Darius Smith on that wheel route. There's not a linebacker in the country that can cover Brock Bowers, let's face it. And Carson looked extremely well, extremely good throwing the ball. I thought he looked better than anybody last year throwing the ball. Arm talent and Carson back, zero questions. You know, tall, uh, effective, proficient, all that stuff. Now, that said, there wasn't a whole lot of adversity for Carson Beck. There wasn't really a pass rush on Carson Beck. He was able to pick out open receivers, right? And, and I think that had a lot to do with his numbers. I mean, you saw the first three drives, boom, 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 touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. The first three drives he's in the game in, in different ways. Uh, you know, there's a handoff, there was a pass, but I thought he looked really, really good. So I'm, I'm not here to challenge the notion that Carson isn't a talented quarterback because I think he is. 
Um, but I don't think the quarterback battle is over. I really don't. Uh, because we still aren't sure what this Georgia offense is going to be. And what I mean by that is, is what Kirby talked about last week. You got to kind of find out what pieces are going to be around the quarterback and determine what type of offense you want to have. Now, Carson's got some mobility. I mean, he's not a statue back there, but he doesn't have Brock Vandergriff mobility. And, and Brock doesn't have the, I don't think, the Carson touch yet, right? I mean, I think Carson right now has better arm talent and maybe it just looks that way because he's further ahead in the offense. He gets through his progressions really quickly. When we hear about how well he manages the huddle and how well, and as he should, right? He played over 80 snaps last year and got into, you know, a handful of games. So, and he's been getting the number two reps for a while now, whereas Brock Vandergriff is really just getting his feet wet. He's learned the offense last year and now he kind of understands you. But as he told us after the game, Brock Vandergriff said he felt like he was a little late on some throws, felt like he was trying to make up for that with his arm strength. And, and, and I appreciated the transparency, but he was smiling. He thought he did his best. You know, I thought he did a really nice job making some throws off the run. Very accurate. You know, I'm with Jake Fromm on this. I, I think he's a bigger, better version of Stetson Bennett. I don't know that he's got the supporting cast that Stetson had. There's no Darnell out there. There's no pass catching back like Kenny. Um, I think the offensive line will be good, but, you know, A.D. Mitchell's transferred. So he doesn't really have the supporting cast Stetson did, but I really like the plays that Brock made off the run. Now, the numbers don't look as pretty, but as Kirby said, I mean, there were three or four drop passes out there. I mean, Oscar Delp had a couple of them, um, but Vandergriff, I thought showed well under adversity. Now there was one interception that Brock told us about. He said, listen, I know what was happening. Three level throws. We had somebody taken off the top. Uh, you know, Tyke was going to undercut that route. You saw him undercut that route, pick off the ball. And they were going to try to force Brock to throw into the flats to Delp. And then the defense was set to rally around it. It's almost like a, a trap. It's like the defense is dictating what they're going to give you. And then they're prepared to react to what they're giving you. It's it's more ingenious, Kirby Smart type of stuff. And Brock had thought all that through and just thought he could make that throw. And he said, I got greedy and I thought I could make that throw. I couldn't. And Tyke leaped up and made a great catch to kind of catch you go, wow, that's why he was an All-American at West Virginia three years ago. He's really come to fruition. I'm going to go over my stock report with you uh, here in a moment. Uh, but getting back to the quarterback battle, remember, 92 of Carson's, what, how many yards did he have in the first half? Let me take a quick peek here. I want to say 92 of Carson's 211 yards in the first half were on three passes to Vandergriff and Ladd McConkey. Vandergriff worked with the first team in the second half, didn't do nearly as well. What was he in the second half? Four of 11 when he had that pick. He didn't have Brock Bowers or Ladd McConkey to throw to. Do you think that might make a difference? I think it makes a big difference. So when Kirby said it's 24-19 at halftime and Kirby's saying, you know, defense didn't play worth the darn. We got to come up with a way to make some stops. I'll tell you how he did it. He told him not to play McConkey and Bowers anymore on offense. That's a really good way to come up with some stops. Take away the other team's top two wide receivers. So they played a few snaps. They didn't play much. And, and Vandegrift really didn't have uh, the opportunity to work too much with those guys. So that's why I say don't, don't get too far ahead here. Uh, you know, I do think Carson is the number one. I do. I think it's a one A, but I think it's one A and one B. I, I, by no means is it over. And Kirby emphasized, he said, listen, guys, there's only 25% of the hay that's in the barn. 
There's 75% left. And, and also a really easy schedule that, that's going to give these quarterbacks, I think, both a chance to play. I think Kirby Smart was pleased with the way Carson and Brock played. He, he said he was pleased with Gunner, too. But, you know, we all saw the series. Gunner had it at the two. Cardinal sin takes a delay game, moves it back to the seven-yard line, kind of shades of what Missouri did, um, takes it back to the seven. And then the next thing you know, there's a sack. And now you're overthrowing somebody, and now you're, you know, a pass is batted down, and a first and goal to two turns into a field goal. That's not going to happen. But that's where that management comes in. And that's where you have to realize that Gunner is still learning the offense, and there's a lot of facets. So he's not out of it because he's still learning it. And you just don't know how fast the light comes on. I, I thought Gunner made some good throws uh, when he had a clean pocket and when he had some time. But you saw that he is still learning the offense. He is a half a step behind uh, Vandergrift, who is a half a step behind Beck. But Vandergrift brings mobility. You know, this is the second year in a row Brock had the longest run in scrimmage. He went 23 yards. He's fast. He, when he runs, he looks like a runner. He doesn't look like a quarterback running for his life. He looks like a running back. So he's, he's a really skilled runner. He makes pretty good decisions. Um, usually pretty efficient today. He tried to put it in, or excuse me, Saturday, he tried to put it into a window that wasn't there. But I don't think this quarterback, and, and I asked Brock Bowers after the game, I said, what do you think of the quarterback deal? He said, it's still up in the air. You know, they go back and forth. One guy will have a good day. The other guy will have. But remember, we only saw what we saw. We saw what we were supposed to see at G-Day, right? We didn't see the first scrimmage. We didn't really see the second scrimmage. We didn't see all the work between the lines. There's a lot of dynamics involved in this quarterback game. Again, if if Beck starts, I, I would say he's the betting favorite. If you ask me who I was going to bet on to start the first game, I'd say Carson Beck. But I'm not ready to say that I think Carson's got it locked down. And, and I'm not ready to say that even if Carson starts the first game, doesn't mean he's going to start the first game in October. This is going to be an ongoing thing. And Kirby likes quarterbacks with mobility. We saw that. We've seen that before, and it's a long season, folks. For Georgia to go 15-0 and 0 and win another national championship, there's going to be some attrition. You know, that's why he's playing uh, Ernest Green and Austin Blasky at left tackle. Kirby brought it up earlier. He said, you know, the last four years, we haven't gotten through a season at Georgia where we haven't lost an offensive tackle. That's what Kirby said. And, and so he knows you've got to have at least three tackles that you can trust. Well, you can look at the attrition in the SEC for quarterbacks, and I'll bet you that half the time teams start more than one quarterback during the course of the year. I mean, even Bryce Young, who I think, you know, was as skilled as anyone at eluding the rush and, and you know, keeping it. Even Bryce Young, you know, had to miss a little bit of time. So Georgia's got to have two quarterbacks ready. Those two quarterbacks that are ready right now are Beck and Vandergriff. I, I don't think Vandergriff's going anywhere. Every time I talk with him – uh, you know, it's he's staying and graduating from Georgia, and that's going to be in December. So Brock Vandergriff is sticking around. He's going to graduate in three years. I mean, that is a program quarterback. That is the sort of student athlete that Kirby wants representing the program. Beck as well. Beck now talking about competing in the classroom. Carson has matured, right? So I like the quarterback position. Uh, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but I, I think you're just as good a quarterback as you were. Um, it's going to be a different offense though, because you don't have the same pieces. And we've talked about that on previous shows about how special Darnell was and how special Kenny was. 
And and I think you might even add a running back in the portal. I, I think you have to, don't you? I mean, now Branson Robinson, we're learning he was in a boot. Okay, Dejan comes back, but Dejan missed time with a hamstring. And Andrew Paul's still coming back from an E. And Kendall Milton missed time with a hamstring. I mean, my goodness, you had four running backs uh, miss time with injury. Four of your five scholarship running backs can miss time with injury. And you got to sign another one. You got to. That's why when the Bear Alexander news came out, and I was not surprised by this. I was not surprised. Now, other people, oh, he's he's promised. He feels like, I said, listen, the kid moved around in high school, and, and that's fine. There's reasons for that. You know, you can go through family instances, better situations. But then he commits to Georgia, takes a visit to AM and decommits. All right. That didn't just happen. He didn't decommit for free. I'm just telling you what I suspect. I don't know this for a fact, but typically, uh, you know, schools can induce kids to do all sorts of things. And AM got back in on Bear Alexander. We know that. And then Bear recommitted again. Now, sometimes, not always, with NIL and money, sometimes kids get, you know, they can, you know, money pops up, things happen. And then there was talk that Bear was looking to transfer at the end of the first portal window uh, back after, you know, back in December. So um, my thought was, you know, this guy is going to keep asking for more. Uh, he's going to want this address. That was my personal thought, just reading the tea leaves on what I'd seen. And if you're Kirby at some point, if any player, forget Bear Alexander, take him out of the equation. But if there's a recruit, it's just a hypothetical situation. If there's a player that you sign that wants a certain amount of money, let's say he wants two or $300,000 and you give him that two or $300,000 and then he plays and he has a pretty good season. He looks promising and he comes back to the well and he says he wants to renegotiate. Now he wants four or $500,000, right? Well, now another team's in and they want him to go on the portal and they're offering him $750,000 and the $400,000 that he said he wanted turns into 750 because another pro and look at some point, if you're Kirby, or Georgia, you're not renegotiating anymore. You can't do it. You can't keep coming back asking for more. It just it doesn't work that way. That at least not yet. And, and listen, it's the Wild West, so there's no rules. There's no hard and fast way. You know, Kirby's got to do what Kirby's got to do. You know, Saban's doing what he's got. All these coaches are doing what they got to do, and it's and it's very very fluid. And if it starts to affect a player's performance or attitude, you got a problem. All right. And, you know, I'll give you an example when it wasn't a problem. Last spring of 2022, Amarius Mims, you know, had signed with George as the five star before all this NIL collective stuff got off the ground. And after the season, he wanted to take a peek at Florida State, a program that had also recruited him and obviously a program that was offering greener pastures, as Kirby puts it. And he went down there, took a look around. And then Georgia came back and Amarius said, you know what? I'm sticking with Georgia. I interviewed Amarius after the national title game. He said, you know what? I was immature. Um, you know, my teammates took me back. They love me. They didn't have to do that. I appreciate it. I'm all in. Let me tell you, Amarius Mims, grown man, props to him, matured. You know, whatever happened with Florida State, he gave it a second look. It, that's not the way it's going to be. That's not going to be uh, uh, the norm. But under the circumstances with rules changing uh, from the time he came in, you know, I think Kirby looked at that and said, all right, I get it. You know, I think you take into consideration a lot of things. Every case is different. But I know this. You, if you make a deal, you can't just keep coming back asking for more. That's just not how it works. Maybe someday 
or maybe not, we'll get to a collective bargaining agreement where these players will be salaried like the end. I don't know if that's good or bad. You you folks tell me, I, would that be good if this is just run like a, a professional franchise? Because it looks more and more like that every day. Behind the scenes, again, it's it's very fluid. It's not publicized like it is in the NFL. Would it be better if it was? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if it would be better if this was public or not. Uh, but already, players know what each other's making. There has been hard feelings before. It happens in every locker room. I personally believe, and again, opinion, I don't know anything hard and fast, but I think that's what went wrong with Texas A&M last year. I think you had a locker room that was upside down. I can't give you another explanation for how poorly Texas A&M played. They got championship quality coaches. They got talent all over the place. They got arguably, you know, some of the best facilities in the country, and, and they they were struggling. That was a locker room issue. That's a chemistry issue. That another area where Kirby Smart is ahead of the pack. And you know, I, I guess it made a headline. I, I don't typically like to say I made headlines because that's really not my job, but sometimes I give opinions. And if other people want to make headlines out of it, that's their business. And that's what Saturday Now and South did when I went on the Ball Feinbaum show on the SEC network. And I said Kirby Smart was the best coach in the country. And I didn't think I was breaking any news here. Like, to me, it's like, did you watch the last two national championship games? Typically, the team that wins the championship is viewed as the best. And the coach that wins the championship is viewed as the best. Well, Kirby's done it twice in a row during the college football playoff era. Nobody's done that. Saban didn't do that. Saban didn't have to win two 14 playoffs. Saban doesn't have a 15-0 record. Now, listen. If we're talking about greatest of all time, greatest of this era, all right, I'll give Saban his props. What has he got, six national titles? Of course. But if we're talking about who is the best right now, we're going to make that argument based on what is happening right now, okay? Not what happened in 2011 and 2012. So I didn't think I was going out on any limbs here. Somehow the entire Alabama fan base has taken offense at this. Now, I will say this. Whoever controls the Twitter account for Feinbaum said that I said it wasn't even close. I did not say it wasn't even close because I think it is close because I do think Nick Saban is a fantastic coach. But right now, Kirby's the best, period. I just, you cannot deny it. And there are a lot of people that point out that Kirby coached under Nick for, I think, nine years. I think that's right. I want to say one year. Uh, uh, he was not the defensive coordinator the first year. I think, uh, I think Kevin Steele was the guy that's the current defense coordinator. Go back and look how that first year went, by the way. And then I know he was with him one year with the Dolphins. So maybe 11 years total because he was also with them uh, at LSU, I believe. So Kirby's time at Alabama, though, was absolutely pivotal and integral to his success. And he did learn a lot from Nick Saban. Of course he did. How could you not, right? But Kirby also coached under Mark Rick for a year. He also coached under Bobby Bowden for a year. And more relevant, the last six years, seven years, Kirby's been on his own. Seven years now, folks. Now, I don't know about you. I learned a lot from my mom and dad. But by the time I was seven years out of the house, I was kind of my own person. All right? I think Kirby's his own guy here at 47. Let's not pretend he picks up the phone and asks Nick Saban for advice. He doesn't. My point is, Kirby may have learned a lot coaching under Saban during his time in Tuscaloosa. But the last seven years, I think everybody would agree with this. The game has changed. 
since Kirby coached in Tuscaloosa in 20, 2015. 2015. Think about all the changes in college football since 2015. Kirby, not Saban, has done the best job of managing the portal and the NIL and the new version of college football. Kirby has the new rules, the targeting rules, the hurry-up rules. Kirby Smart has done the best job since NIL and transfer portal rules have come into play. All you got to do is go back and look. I mean, he was doing the best when he had the graduate transfers. Think about, I think about 2019. I think about Cager and Eli Wolf. I think about Kirby being able to evaluate those guys and saying, you know what, we need to plug those guys in. I think about 2020. Now, he took Jamie Newman, and Newman didn't pan out, but Kirby and Munkin figured that out early, and they brought JT Daniels in. And, and while JT ended up somewhere else, he saved 2020 when Stetson had got hurt and wasn't really able to come back. And, and, and JT lit it up at the end of the year and gave Georgia what they needed to win out, win the bowl game, finish in the top 10. Another USC transfer, right? 2021, uh, you know, Darian Kendrick came in from Clemson, plugged right in at cornerback, was the MVP of the Orange Bowl, defensive MVP. Uh, 2022, Kirby tried to sign Caleb Williams out of the portal, but Lincoln Riley and USC outbid him. And then Stetson did a good enough job to make it not matter. So, and then this year, when we brought up Barry Alexander at the press conference, uh, when I brought up the, the Barry Alexander transfer at the press conference, and Kirby said, hey, that's the way of the world. You know, he said, we've got two guys out there that are transfers that are doing a pretty good job. No doubt about it. Let me tell you, I love it and Tyke are playing at a premium level. West Virginia transfer came in. We thought he was going to make a big deal in 2021, got injured. Uh, and now love it from Missouri, the top receiver from the Tigers. And he looks dynamic. He, he just looks a step ahead of everybody. And love it and McConkey are dangerous receivers. And you can say they still need an X. I think that's going to be Marcus Rosemey-Jack Saint. You saw Rara Thomas did not take part in offensive plays. That tells me the coaches are sending a message like, hey, look, if you don't learn the offense, we're not putting you out there. And that's what that's what the message looked like to me because they played them on special teams. So uh, getting back to, to my point, I think Kirby has proven that he is the best coach currently in college football. And it, this isn't Mike covering Jordan. You guys know I come on here. I've been critical. I mean, people from other fan bases call me a homer, right? Oh, Mike covers Georgia. He's just a homer. The Georgia fans say, you're a lot harder on Georgia than any of these other guys that cover the team. I can't win. I'm not trying to be hard. I'm not trying to be easy. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. And, you know, someone said, oh, I really like that story. I agree with Well, the news is a lot better. It's a lot easier to talk about Georgia football when you watch a G-Day game that's orchestrated and scripted that well. And, and, and I mean that in the, in the most positive sense. Nobody got hurt. Players stepped up. Kirby found out what he had at different positions, and it came prepackaged and really looked good for the national audience. It, because remember, the audience is trained. I mean, they've been, you know, being fed Alabama, 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 the whole Saban era. And, and some of them are reluctant to step back and say, okay, well, maybe he's not the best anymore. So what is this Georgia product? All right. Now Georgia's won a couple of them, right? If, if I'm the, the bandwagon fan, the fringe fan, and I'm like, all right, this Georgia team, what a, what about them? This was supposed to be Alabama. I'd gotten used to Nick Saban, and now the SEC's got this Georgia team. What is it? What are they? I've read this. I heard that. Their quarterback did this. 
What does it look like now? It was very important that Georgia looked good on television. You have to understand that. And you also have to give Kirby smart credit for making sure that Georgia looked good on television while also giving his players a chance to compete. You know, that is expertise. What we saw from Kirby smart was football art. I mean, it was brilliantly scripted. Everybody got what they needed out of that scrimmage. And it came across really well. And it was a tremendous advertisement for Georgia football. Because a lot of people, like I said, they're still learning about the dogs. They don't really know. Um, now, let me get into my uh, uh, kind of my quick take stock report. When we talk about stock soaring, the, the McKay Muse, uh, I had heard about this kid. I had heard that he was doing things behind the scenes. But seeing was believing. He had a 99-yard kick return. They called it back. They said he was down. I don't think the guy would have tackled him, but whatever. We're playing two-hand touch. He had a nine-yard punt return. I believe he had a 54-yard catch and run where he broke some. This guy's got some juice. This is exciting. I like the guys with juice. You guys know that. I, I like the players who bring the juice. I like players that can take it the distance and hit the home run. I was impressed. This kid is dynamic. He's hungry. He was a preferred walk-on. I believe from, I want to say Central Gwinnett, this is a player to keep an eye on. How cool would it be if Georgia had another preferred walk-on that could evolve into a dynamic figure in the program from the state of Georgia? I think we're going to hear more about him. Uh, hopefully he you know keeps everything strong, keeps doing a great job, because it would be cool for Georgia to have that. So they need a guy like that in the return game. With Kiaris moving on, I think Lad's too valuable to put back there on kick return or excuse me, punt return. I think this it could be this kid's time. So I'm excited for him. Uh, Tyke Smith, I brought it up earlier, that leaping interception. Um, you know, he, you see him, he doesn't look like much. He's kind of small. He's not very big. He's not really fast. He's coming out of that knee brace. He's just a player. You know, Georgia saw something in him to take him from West Virginia, but unfortunately he had the foot injury and then the knee injury and we never, and then he'd been playing in a knee brace. So we really hadn't got to see what Tyke Smith was all about. But now that he's out of the knee brace, he looks legit. Now he looks like a kid that could be a preseason All-SEC candidate. And his emergence is so important because it gives Georgia an opportunity to move Javon Buller to that safety spot where Chris Smith was at last year. And I'm not, I'm not completely, you know, Bullard is a fantastic player, obviously a big hitter. That safety spot's a little different. Um, Kirby tells us David Daniel is also in that rotation. So they got three guys for two spots there. That's pretty big. So those were the two guys that I had stock soaring. Um, and again, this is, you know, first draft. I'm going to, you know, write about it a little bit later this week. I'll refine it. Stock up. I put Carson Beck and Brock Vandegrift. And, and again, Carson had better numbers and a better scrimmage. Make no mistake about that. But I saw things from Brock Vandergriff that tell me this guy's a player. I understand why Lincoln Riley tried to get him in Oklahoma, okay? Brock has very good mobility. He has a lot of composure. And he's got a strong arm. Again, I'm not putting his arm on a level with Carson. I like Carson's arm talent a little bit better. I think Carson's big time. Um and, and I don't, you know, and, and he's athletic enough. I mean, Carson Beck could win a Heisman Trophy, folks, all right? If he's got the same kind of supporting cast that Stetson had last year, Carson Beck could win a Heisman Trophy if he handles adversity well. We haven't seen that yet. Now, again, Kirby wasn't going to put that adversity on him in this scrimmage. It will come between now and the opener. 
Kirby will continue to test Carson Beck. And we will learn if Carson Beck has what it takes to A, be consistent on and off the field, and B, handle adversity on the field. And, and that's where Carson's got to get to. Vandergriff has to learn the offense better, needs more reps so he can work through his progressions quicker, and then we'll find out what his ceiling is arm-wise. He has better mobility than Carson. Bottom line, between the two of them, they're good enough to lead Georgia to a championship. Whether you think it's Carson, whether you think it's Vandergriff, whether you think it's both, Georgia has what it takes at quarterback to three-peat. That's what I came out of there thinking. Both of those guys stock up. Lost and lucky. I keep hearing about this freshman tight end. They, everybody, nobody will shut up. Everybody's seen it behind the scenes. You saw him take a pretty wicked lick on the sideline. He keeps on ticking. I like this guy. He is pushing. He is pushing for the number two job behind Brock Bowers. Make no mistake about it. It's a challenge that Oscar Delp must accept and must fare better against. Again, Delp was on my stock even. Right. Even we know what even means. Right. Because we're not we're not allowed to say stock down or everybody kind of loses their junk stock. Even for Oscar, he had two drop passes. Man, you can't do that. You're competing with Lucky. You know, you're the second year guy. We know what Delp looked like last year. He was fantastic. So sometimes, though, when kids get pushed and, and they feel a little, it, it, you know, it pressure and competition doesn't always bring out the best. And, and sometimes kids have to learn. And grow. It's okay. Like maybe at first he wasn't good again. And then you learn to handle the competition. This is part of growing in the program. All right. Uh, Javon Bullard was my other stock up. He was very active. He was all over the place. Uh, just like Kirby said, called him a little stick of dynamite. I thought Kirby was getting carried away with it. Um, but it actually looked pretty good. I thought. Uh, Javon Dumas Johnson, I put him stock even. I, listen, I have high standards and expectations for Jamon Dumas Johnson. I just want you, I want to be clear on this. I think Jamon Dumas Johnson at his best and focused is one of the top three middle linebackers in the country. He should be a Butkus award finalist. He should be an all American. I think a lot of JDJ. Now we all know that he's gone through some off the field stuff, right? We all know that he was charged with racing and reckless driving leading up to the trip. We all know that. What we don't know is how he's handling that, all right? This can be traumatic. This can be distracting. Uh, this can be really hard on a player. We also don't know how does Jamon Dumas Johnson handle success. You remember Kirby said he called JDJ and smiled in his office, you know, three or four practices in and said, hey, I want to show you guys how hard you were practicing last year. Now, do you think you're practicing like that this year? Are you as hungry? And he said the players, you know, recognized they weren't and they responded accordingly. All right. Now, I don't know what's happened since then. Jamon Dumas Johnson played. He had four tackles. Again, my expectations for him are incredulous. You could put him, he would start for any other team in the SEC. But when he's not doing elite things, like I think he should be doing elite things, that's a stock even. Because a regular day at the office for Jamon Dumas Johnson, in my book, after what I've seen out of this guy for two years, means he's had one hell of a performance. And I didn't think he had one hell of a performance. And I'm sure he did fine. It's like Kirby Smart said, he told him, you know, it's not that they did anything wrong. It's that they didn't do things right enough. And I guess that's how I view uh, JDJ. I think he should be a guy that jumps out and looks like the, one of the best players on the field every game he plays. Uh, Ra Ra Thomas was the other stock even. 
Um, didn't play any offensive snaps. Kirby didn't get said there was still some things he was working on. Well, what does that mean? Aren't they all working on something? I mean, code four in the doghouse. All right. He had the off the field issue before he came to the program. You know, then he then he uh, didn't start out. He started out kind of slow and then he had a good scrimmage. Then he hurt his knee. And I don't know where he's at now. But right now he doesn't look like the X. He doesn't look like the answer yet. Now, who knows what the offseason is going to bring? Remember, Kirby said they're only 25 percent into this and 75 percent. before. There's plenty of time left for the Mississippi State transfer to, to be, you know, what Kirby and them thought he was because they did an evaluation. Munkin was all in on this too. Munkin told all the boosters back in January that Lovett and Ra Ra were just head and shoulders above any of the freshmen because of what they would bring from it. So this is a Munkin has evaluated this guy. This guy's Munkin approved. We all think a lot of Todd Munkin. Um, and we think a lot of Kirby Smart. You know, these are two of the best talent evaluators in the country, which is part of why George is so doggone good. Um, but uh, yeah, so the stock even. So that that's kind of that. There were some key injuries. Kendall didn't play. Michael Williams didn't play. Smile Munden. That's that's one. You know, I, I really hope he's back. You know, all indications that I'd heard with the, these guys would be back. But Smile is key. Smile was the tackling leader. He's you know good cop, bad Batman, Robin, whatever you want to call him, and JDJ in the middle there. They're just dynamite together. Um, you know, they got synergy. I think the sum's great when those two are playing together. Ten and two, like on the steering wheel, like Nolan Smith said when I, I said, "Who's going to be the who's going to replace your juice?" Now he said, ten and two." You talk about having your hands on the steering wheel at ten and two. Only Nolan Smith could come up with that. Uh, Jalen Walker, Marvin Jones, they didn't play. Those are also key figures because the thing that was missing for me defensively was eighty-eight. Right? I mean, just watching Jalen Carter these last three years when he's in the game, he's just moving bodies. He's just wreaking havoc. Like Kirby said, he's a train wrecker. Right? They don't have that. I don't see that yet. Could could one of these other kids emerge into that growing? Maybe, perhaps. But 88 was special right from the get-go. You don't have 88, and you don't have four off the edge. You know, and, and, and we'll see if Marvin Jones or Jalen Walker turned into that or Chaz Chambliss or, you know, one of these other, you know, young guys that they brought in, and Pemba, uh, Wilson. They've got a host of talented guys that, quote-unquote, looked apart in the uniform. But there's nobody that matches uh, Nolan Smith off the edge. There's nobody that's matching uh, number 88 in the middle. They don't have that. Those were dynamic, game-changing players. And you needed that in certain games, right? Let's, let's not kid ourselves. Georgia went 15-0, and but it wasn't a dominant 15-0. and There was a couple games where you're going, oh, my gosh, are they really losing to Georgia Tech in the second quarter? Are they really struggling? Did Kirby really shut down the passing game and put the whole game on Kenny McIntosh at Kentucky? And, oh, my gosh, were they really down 10 points to Missouri in the fourth? They were. So it was a great coaching job. It was a great effort. And 15-0 and looks so much better than everyone else in, in, its in its totality. But if you looked at this on a micro level, there were games, you know, and yeah, Georgia looked fantastic. And certainly you know, Oregon, nobody's touching them. South Carolina, you know, you know, blew up that stadium. William Bryce just killed them. Uh, Tennessee, dominant performance. I thought the best game of the year. Best performance of the year. I know they blew out TCU, but I think the Tennessee game was a better game and a better performance because of what was at stake. Number one versus number one. Uh, easily one of the top two or three games I've covered in my career. 30 years of football, covering college football. That Tennessee-Georgia game at Sanford Stadium was special. The crowd turned out. I mean, I could be, you know, again, Carter in that game, two force fun, just unstoppable. I mean, that was a legendary performance by Jalen Carter in that game.
Um, and you don't, who's going to be that guy? Like, so who's going to give us the legendary performances this year on the defensive front? And you, well, you know, I think Stackhouse is pretty good. And I think Brent's is, but you think, you know, Zion Logue, you know, are they first round picks? I, I'm not convinced they are. Okay. So where's that going to come from? And Kirby said, we're going to have to create some of that. Right. And that's not good. You just assume get that without bringing pressure and bringing another guy up from your coverage. So the fact that Kirby's already telling you, hey, we're going to have to create some of that, that's a red flag. That's a little bit of a red flag, all right? Now, your offense may be more dynamic. In the end, we'll see. Um, again, you had some special guys, and that double tight end formation was just murder on team. You know, when I talked with the TCU captain, he said, we couldn't get lined up. We couldn't figure out how to cover these two guys. That was what happened against TCU. I mean, look, th that same TCU defense held Texas without an offensive touchdown in Austin. Georgia put up 65, and the, the captain told me we couldn't get lined up. They were so doggone worried about Brock Bowers and what they were going to do, and Monk had just played him like a fiddle, moving the guys around and dictating the matchups, and Stetson was able to recognize and go, got him there, got him there. He knew where he was going with the ball two-thirds of the time before it was even snapped. That's the way it's supposed to work, all right? And Georgia is working towards that right now. They're trying to get there with Beck. They're trying to get there with Vandegrift. And then Kirby told us it's not so much the quarterbacks in those two, it's the receivers. It's not Lad McConkey. It's not Brock Bowers. It's not Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint. It may not even be Dylan Bell. But when you have five midterm newcomers, the two transfers, Rod and, and Levitt, and I already told you Levitt's up to speed. He looks amazing. Um, and then the three freshmen. And, and there, I think what Zeed made a pretty nice catch. I didn't see much else that blew me away from those freshmen, but that's okay. It's a pro style offense. It takes time to learn it. There's a lot of intricacies to this. You got BMAC, Brian McLennan, one of the best teachers out there. So it, there'll be a sharp learning curve this summer, this off season. The team we see against UT Martin will look better than the team we saw in that scrimmage. And then we'll see him against Ball State. And then we'll see him against South Carolina at home. And then we'll see him against UAB. And then we'll see the first road test of the year at Auburn. And by then, that's when you've got to have those quarterbacks dialed in where that Jordan hair crowd factor doesn't mean because it makes a difference. That is a loud, hostile stadium. I put it in my top five in the SEC, even when Auburn's not good. You know, I went to that Auburn LSU game this year. I forget who Georgia was playing, somebody pretty weak. And we said, hey, Mike, why don't you go to Auburn LSU since Georgia plays Auburn the next week? Do you realize Auburn was beating LSU 17 to zero? with about four minutes left in the first half, as I recall, okay? LSU, the same LSU that put 30 and 540 yards thrown on Georgia, all right? So Auburn can be testy at home. That place makes a difference. I'm not saying I don't think Auburn's going to beat Georgia. I don't want anybody to mis misunderstand me. Hugh Freeze, though, did beat Kirby the last time he played him. But, but I, th I think Georgia's going to be primed for that game. I worry a little bit about the next week against Kentucky, if, if that's kind of a little bit of a trap, like look past them and, you know, cause you're going to get, you know, George is going to get up for Auburn. Kirby gets up for, you know, he'll tell you they get up the same for all of them, but I, I can't remember which one of the players told me like you can tell that Kirby was a player. You can tell there's a little something extra for a certain team. And we all know how Kirby feels about Auburn and Florida and Tennessee, particularly those three teams, particularly Kirby is a Georgia bulldog. He can't help himself. It's like when that dog gets the scent of a cat and they start growling, you know, and Kirby gets a scent of those rivals. He starts growling, man. 
And he, again, he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know that his ears, the hair stand up on his neck. He thinks it's just a normal wheat. But the kids notice it. Kirby has an edge, right? And that's why when, when people say to me, it's funny, people go, man, you go to Kirby's press conferences. What about when he snaps back at you guys? That must suck. I'm like, no, no, that doesn't suck. That's like going to the zoo and seeing the tiger or the lion roar. That's what I'm here for. You know, you put your hand between the bars. Here's a chance you might get bit. He's Kirby smart, man. He's not here to make friends. He's not here to be docile and petted and liked by everybody. He's a competitor. He's here to win championships. The media is in the way. He doesn't got time for this in his mind, right? Now we know, hey, Kirby, you got a lot of fans out there. They want to know what's going on. You know, you got this budget of 200 million. There's people putting money in your pocket. You want to talk about the kids. You need to promote the program. Okay, he gets it, but it's not the favorite part of his job. And I'm not, I'm not, and I, and I don't begrudge him for that. From the first day I was on the, I'll never forget him telling me this. He just said, hey, I just want you to know, like, I don't make friends with people, like, on the, on the report. That's not my, you know, I'm just here to do my, and I said, oh, I get it. No, it's cool. It's like nothing personal, but he's here to win games. I get it. You're right. And I'm here to tell stories, report stories, give you opinions give you those comparisons, put Kirby Smart into perspective after covering guys like Gene Stallings and, and Philip Fulmer and, and you know Mark D'Antonio and, and Butch Jones and Bruce Pearl and Tom Izzo and Pat Summit. Being around a lot of great coaches, you learn a lot. And, and now, you know, obviously I'm dealing with Spurrier now, and, and he's an intriguing figure. I'll tell you, Spurrier, and, and Georgia fans probably don't want to hear this, but, but Spurrier is really intrigued by Kirby Smart. I, I, I'd stop short of calling him a fan of Kirby Smart, but he has a lot of respect for Kirby Smart. And I know that he personally has pulled him aside and told him. And, and they kind of got that visor thing in common, right? It's not supposed to be that. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mike, you're ruining it. Florida and Georgia culture, don't worry. It's, it's, it's not going to be like a, a public kumbaya, but I'm letting you know that Spurrier recognizes Kirby. I think here's part of Spurrier wishes he'd had a chance you know, um, you know, recently to, to match wits because, you know, he sees what Spurrier's mind's always moving. I'll tell you what, if Billy Napier uh, was smart, he, he would bring the ball coach into his office and say, hey, I appreciate you being here. Just tell me what you see. Give me some idea. That ain't happening. That's that's Florida's story. I'll tell you that story. It's a story for another day. Uh, right now, I, I was just so impressed with what I saw from Georgia at G-Day. I really didn't know what I would see. Like, Obviously, it would be a fantastic and historical story for Georgia to three-peat. It would be unprecedented in the modern era. It hasn't happened since Minnesota back in like 1934, 35. They didn't even have face masks then. They were wearing leather helmets. It didn't happen in this day and age of college football as we know it. If Georgia can pull this off, this would be unbelievable. Winning two in a row, you go, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty strong stuff. But if you won three you're going where no man has gone before. And that is the kind of thing that changes perception. Right now, like I said, there's still that battle out there. I didn't think that was a debate. When I said Kirby Smart was a better coach than Nick Saban right now, not, not all time, okay, not on all time list. I didn't think that was even debatable. It's unbelievable how many people come out of the woodwork and go, ah, you're just a Georgia homer. I'm like, if you missed the last two seasons, Georgia hasn't lost a regular season game since what 2020 are you what are you what are we missing it you know what it kind of reminds me of it kind of reminds me of how Barry Switzer was always viewed as a better coach than Tom Osborne and, and early on Barry Switzer beat Osborne early on Oklahoma 
got the better of Nebraska. But at the end, before it was all said and done, Nebraska was the only team of the 1990s that you would put on the platform with Florida. Now, if there had been a four-team playoff, I'm not sure what would have happened. I do think Spurrier would have won more than one title. I mean, my goodness, the guy won six or seven SEC titles in 12 years, four in a row. It's ridiculous. Uh, but, but what my point was, was by the end, Nebraska had conquered. And I see Georgia doing that. And right now, I wouldn't pick against Georgia to win a three-peat because I don't see another team out there yet. Now, maybe there's somebody. There always is. I don't think we saw Joe Burrow coming. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see Mac Jones coming. You know, guys evolve, guys learn, guys get Hey, other teams may not see Carson Beck coming or Brock Vandergriff coming. They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And, and we're, we're going to start to find out in September. The schedule works for you to an extent, provided the team gets better and better and better. Not a given. Story that I'm going to write later this week, uh, I'll share it, you know, quickly. I'd ask Kirby about not playing in Oregon or Clemson to open. And, you know, since he said, we create our own sense of urgency. He said, our guys line up against the best team in the nation every day in practice. I said, man, Kirby's doing some recruiting. He doesn't normally talk like that. But that was also more evidence that, hey, Kirby Smart is in primetime mode. He knows that the lights and the cameras are on with Georgia being on national television on G-Day. Folks, that was special. I don't know if you realize it yet, but that was special. You should realize it. You've been hearing me tell you that for the last 35, 40 minutes. There is going to be a net a wave effect from that. It was a great day for Georgia football. Folks, I'm going to go now. I will be back later this week. I'll be on Dog Nation Daily with Brandon Adams on Wednesday. Always enjoy that. You know, Brandon Adams, every day at 10 a.m., Dog Nation Daily often has Jake Fromm on there. He'll be on there uh, Tuesday. I'll be interested to get his take on the game. Uh, don't forget Wednesday at Centel, uh, before the hedges with his Centel's intel on recruiting. I know Jeff is probably one of the guys surprised by Bear Bear. Bear told Jeff he was staying. He was all in, you know, all this kind of stuff. Bear even got a tattoo on his arm. But I, I guess what what do tattoos mean nowadays? You know, I guess you can't even trust the tattoo anymore. So, uh, but I, I look forward to the rest of this week. We're gonna, me and Connor Riley. We're going to give you a ton of pre-draft coverage. We're going to start working on capsules on all the dogs that could be drafted. Could have as many ten and eleven drafted. I think. Right. I'm not sure where you think they'll go, but next Monday. Um, is it next Monday? Yeah, I might try to tape a show for y'all next week, next Monday, about my thoughts going into the NFL draft and kind of, you know, where I think the different Bulldogs uh, stand up. But we'll have great coverage all week on dognation.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Mike Griffith32. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see all those crazy people that are arguing that Kirby's not the best coach in college football. And there, you'll see them. They're all there. They all come. Some of them give their real name. I couldn't believe it. At Mike Griffith32 on Twitter. I want everybody to have a great week. And before we go, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Ingles. We appreciate Ingles bringing the show to you each and every Monday night. For Ingles, I'm Mike Griffith. I want everybody to have a great week. Check out this message from our sponsor. Did you know that Ingles sells more organics than any other store? Or that they run their own dairy? Or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else? Or that they have energy smart stores? Or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department? Or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles. Low prices. Love the savings.